Hey everyone, welcome to Caster Calls with Zombie Grub. This podcast has been in the works for a while, and I'm excited to finally get things started. I love talking about casting, how people approach it and how it affects our lives, how to improve at it and what to do if you're a professional in the industry. So I made a podcast specifically for it. We may touch on things outside of just the esports commentary realm, but the focus will never not be on talking in front of a bunch of passionate fans. The Patreon for this can be found at patreon.com slash zombiegrub, and I hope you guys will check it out. Your support goes back into increasing the production of this podcast, as well as helping it continue on for... Uh, until I run out of people to talk to, basically. Which is theoretically never. I hope the rewards are something you will find useful, but if you just want to support, that's awesome too. My first guest is Fear Dragon, a caster who I basically grew up with in the world of StarCraft II casting. We started casting around the same time, and we got our first big gig within months of each other. As of this podcast, he's a part-time commentator and streamer while working as a programmer, but he still finds time to create silly projects such as the Applause Bot, and cast dozens of online tournaments. Hopefully you guys enjoy this episode as much as we did. This is Casting Calls with Zombie Grub, and I am here with Fear Dragon. He is going to be my guinea pig for the first episode of this podcast because it's actually my first time podcasting, but it's something I've always wanted to do. It's a subject I love talking about. It's entirely about casting. And I have talked a lot with this guy, Fear Dragon. You know, I love talking about casting. It seems to be what every time we interview each other, it <laughs> devolves into is just talking about casting and all the ins and outs of it. So I'm very happy that you could join me. Thank you so much for actually doing this and helping me with all the technical stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And happy to be here. I, you, I mean, you know, as well as I do that I also really enjoy talking about this. So happy to be here. Yeah. So it is just a podcast purely about casting, but I do want to go into a little bit of the history of you as a uh, caster. So let's just start off with the basics. You know, what is your first gig, if you recall? What was your first cast? What got you into casting? Uh, probably a YouTube video, I'm guessing. Uh, mm-hmm. First gig, first offline event, and first WCS, if you can remember all of those. So oh, yeah, I, I have a great memory of all this stuff. So, okay, the first time I decided to cast, so I was back in college, I was attending Purdue University, and we actually had a really solid uh, collegiate Star League team. But because it was really solid, and I was just a lowly Diamond League player in StarCraft, I was not actually good enough to make the team to ever play in any of our matches, uh, pretty much ever. So I basically just wanted to get involved in some other way. There was another guy who uh, basically was doing the commentary for our matches named Amaface. A really, really cool guy. But he was casting and I was like, you know, this is a way I could get involved. So I kind of told him like, hey, I want to try casting a little bit. Like, what should I do? And he's like, "Okay, well, why don't you just try like casting yourself, like record yourself. So I bought Fraps, uh, which was like the old (laughs) recording style. Yeah, yeah. It's like super old school. Um, Because I remember Total Biscuit would always talk about that. And then what I did was I I recorded myself uh, playing a game against a player named Grey Arrow on Lost Temple, where it was a PvP. And like, I basically win this game in a really, really dumb and simple way. Uh, But that was my first cast. It's actually still up on YouTube. It's really great and super high quality because it goes randomly like eight minutes in. It switches from four by three resolution to 16 by nine. (laughs) Oh, I don't know why, but, uh, you know, first <laughs> first cast woes. Yeah. 
but yeah, that was my first like foray, and I, I got involved and started casting like collegiate star league stuff with a my good friend Ama Face, and from there I ended up just doing a bunch of other stuff. Uh, going to like first gig and everything. I'd imagine you're talking about like first offline gig, yeah? Actually, I'm talking about the first time you were paid. Oh man, that's hmm. <laughs> so that's a that's a complicated question because here's the okay. thing: the first time I got paid was first time I did an offline event, but I still lost money on it. So uh, the first offline, I guess, actually, first offline event that I did was technically Cheesadelphia uh, number two, but I basically just told Joe, who runs Cheesadelphia, like, "Hey, I'm going for this event. You didn't hire me for this event, but can I maybe hop on the desk and commentate a little bit?" <laughs> and he's like, yeah, sure, we'll let you, we'll fit you in for like a series or two. So I did like two series. But mm-hmm. the week after that, I actually did Kings of the North. And the deal that I made with uh, mm-hmm. them was that they would pay me like a very small fee. But I would pay for half of my travel, which ended up being more than my fee. <laughs> so yeah. d- does that count? Does that count as getting paid yes. if I lose money? <laughs> It does count, but yeah. it's also one of the interesting subjects that we'll probably get into about your yeah. first just foray into casting or anything esports-wise. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so that was your, your first game. When, when was that? 2016 March, I think it was. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Okay. So was, when I did you... remember, f- that was right around the time Neeb was coming up, and Neeb, uh. Neeb did great that tournament. Uh, when was your first... When did you start getting into casting then? What year? 2011 oh, wow. July or something June or so, July something around then but around five years between your first yeah. cast and your uh your offline cast and you were still yeah bleeding money and asking people for favors yeah I, w- I would say <laughs> that it really does take a while to kind of like work your way into the scene and you know, when I when I say I got into casting in 2011, that was like I was doing YouTube uploads and stuff and of course, tweeting yeah. <laughs> at day nine and saying like, hey, day nine, you told me at an event that I should just cast for 30 days. So here's day one. Here's day two. Here's day three, which if I think about it in retrospect, I would have blocked myself so long ago if someone was doing that to me on Twitter. But day nine was like actually super nice and supportive and was like, yeah, and you know, I think he even retweeted me once. Yeah. He's a big inspiration of yours, no? Both as a person as a ca- and as a caster, right? Yeah, absolutely. Inspiration is one word. Um, secret, like, love celebrity crush is another word. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, then, what was your first WCS for the audience? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because I know you were actually funny enough literally in the room when i got the offer for this uh yeah if you want to tell the story go ahead yeah so um so i'm i'm actually going to korea for the first time i've ever been to korea and zombie grab was already there for like i think a month or something at that point and you had three your, months three oh, months yes. actually yeah yeah you had already gotten like some airbnb and stuff and i didn't i didn't know my way around the city at all and i was I'm a little babby when it comes to that kind of stuff sometimes. So I was like, okay, zombie grub, like, can can you just come pick me up and like take me to your place? And then I can go find my hotel room and stuff from there. And I remember I get off the plane and I turn on my phone's like Wi-Fi network. And immediately I just see a message from the person who was in charge of a lot of the hiring, like Mark Olberts at the time. And he's kind of like, hey, do you have a time to chat? Do you have time to talk? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm I'm going to be at like an Airbnb or something in about 30 minutes. 
So I get there, I tell you about this, I arrive and you're just like quietly sitting on your bed on your laptop and I'm like sitting there having this conversation out loud <laughs> on my my laptop in the corner sitting on the floor and I got the offer for casting WCS Valencia 2017, which was like a, my first offline event and that that was a huge deal for me. It's usually kind of the big step forward. Now, of course, the WCS system isn't really a thing anymore, so this will be lost in time, perhaps. <laughs> 20 yeah. years, you'll be like, what the heck was that? Is that is that another organization? Is that is that like ESL competition? No. Yeah. Uh, well, now, yeah, exactly. That's what it's going to yeah. be in the future, man. You're going to be like, yeah, it's like the EPT. Yes, mm-hmm. it was. <laughs> but uh, that was the the big jump that a lot of people were looking for that I mean, it used to be a lot more, right? Like you could have been hired for an MLG back in the day mm-hmm. or an NASL um, or a Red Bull. But the actual opportunities to be in a, let's call them like an S tier tournament mm-hmm. were few and far between starting from about, I would say, 2014. They seem to get, you know, fewer and fewer. So that was like a big deal. And it kind of came from left field for for me and for some mm-hmm. other people. But I know you actually have been very proactive you're actually pretty good about trying to follow an ideal list of things to do to actually make connections and get hired can you talk a little bit about that yeah so the the funny story and actually like you were saying there's a little bit of a procession to what the story i just told about you know mark olbert's reaching out and stuff it wasn't actually entirely out of the blue it's not like i never messaged this man in my life and he randomly reaches out uh so the really fun story the part that i don't talk about as much is i I do reach out occasionally to people and be like, hey, I'm interested. Like, how can I get involved in stuff? But the majority of those times I do it, the funny thing is, it's when I'm really, really depressed. It's when I'm at my absolute lowest. So I remember I went on like a 12 or 13 game losing streak in StarCraft. And my my self-esteem just hit rock bottom. <laughs> and I was just like, you know what? I have nothing left to lose. I can't feel any worse right now. And for some reason, my mind starts working on things that I can do. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to send a message to like, uh, it actually wasn't Mark Olberts first because I didn't even I didn't even know Mark Olberts was doing hiring. So I said, I'm going to send a message to Hayoka, who is someone I knew at DreamHack, mm-hmm. who uh, the WCS events used to happen at a lot of the DreamHacks at the time. And I was like, OK, Hayoka, like, who do I talk to to like see what I need to do to bridge the gap? Not in like, hey, please give me a job or something. But like, I just want to know where I stand and like how what I need to do to fill the gap. Hayoka directed me to Mark Olberts and then I shot Mark Olberts a message and he I kind of said like hey here's like some sample stuff like I'm not asking you to hire me right now I just want to know and like if you have any feedback or something on what you think I'm missing as a commentator so that I can work on that. And yeah it it took a year and a half I think for that to come to fruition but it it did. Wow. And uh, for Valencia as well, mm-hmm. which is like, you know, really cool destination yeah. city. I was certainly a little bit jealous, uh, you know, because we had I had kind of been told that there might be like some hirings later in that year at Austin because um, the person who was working at DreamHack really liked me and we knew who that is now. But yeah. It actually like didn't it wasn't I wasn't the first one so that you're one of the first like new pickups, basically for WCS. Until then, it was pretty much the old guard. And we'll talk a little bit about the uh, the fabled old boys club and if it really exists or not, perhaps <laughs> in the uh, future of this podcast. But the idea was that, yeah, there weren't many people coming up 
you know, I, I can't remember. I didn't look up like who else might have been coming up. But like one of the last ones I remember is like maybe Vibe for Red Bull years oh, before. Yeah. I forgot yeah. about that. The only yeah. other ones I could think of were Tenshi and Zewig, but they were also specifically doing the uh, like the ESL events in China. Right. Which I think they specialized in specifically and they didn't really get to hire for anything else outside of there. Yeah, it's really weird because some people will be like, well, the, uh, you know, premier tournaments are over this amount of prize money. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. you're technically not wrong. That was literally their, uh, you know, designation. But I think when casters talking about premier tournaments, we're kind of talking about purely prestige. And getting into kind of the uh, the Blizzard circuit as well, because WCS was literally the Blizzard run world mm-hmm. championship. Well, everything else, I mean, of course, had their their fingers in it. That was them, right? So it definitely was uh, a bit different. What were the big surprises uh, that came with that? I know for me personally, like one of the things that was really different than any other offline cast that I, I really did was that there was so much to work with with the the cameras, right? Yeah. Being on the analyst desk was uh, the biggest difference for me. What about you? I think that was definitely a little bit of a surprise, but I think it, it was a surprise in just the sense that it wasn't exactly how I expected it. But I think before the event, one of the things I was the most conscious about was I know that I don't have like an amazing camera presence. So I, I had already been thinking and working on that. And I remember I even reached out to like Red Eye and one or two other people for like feedback and stuff. Um, actually, I reached out to Jeff as well, or in control as well at the time. But I think besides that, the couple of biggest surprises I had was uh, like from a working standpoint, the analyst desk that you end up seeing all the casters on. I think when I watch those segments as a viewer, they actually feel pretty long because, you know, everyone is always just saying like, okay, why can the casters please stop talking so we can just watch the game for a little bit? Jesus, these people are so narcissistic. You know, everyone has those complaints and everything. So the desk segments feel very long because you're waiting for the games to start. But when you're on the desk, they feel so short. And I think the format for EPT and like how last year's WCS events kind of changed things up uh, in 2019. But before that, I think the the style was that basically I realized I had to come to the desk with one, maybe two things that I was going to say, because I actually wouldn't have time to talk about all the other stuff I want to talk about. That was probably one of the biggest surprises. Um, I'd say besides that, I was also surprised, and I know I've talked with you a lot about this, Amigrav, and I know I think you also were a little bit caught off guard by this, but I think at your first event, the exact same thing happened, where the finals are rolling around, we're sitting in the semifinals, all the casters are sitting in the green room, <laughs> and then, you know, Marco Burtz or someone comes into the green room and is like, okay, so uh, who would like to cast the finals? And it's just dead silence because it's like a zvz finals or something and everyone's i'm just looking around like am am i am i allowed to volunteer myself this is my first event i I shouldn't be casting the finals but no one else is volunteering right now this is so strange this is not what i expected yeah that's the exact same thing that happened with me and now the montreal finals ended up being the epic smackdown of snoot versus neeb so it really wasn't (laughs) a great finals like in retrospect but still like we didn't know that if anything, that sounded like an amazing finals at the time. But yeah, the same thing happened. You know, Maynard's always keen to cast the finals and he basically is the designee now to uh, to cast all the finals. <laughs> but um, yeah, everyone's just like, you know, I don't know. And I also had the same thing where I was like, I don't think I can volunteer myself. Like I'm the newbie here. So that was a big surprise. Just the way that there was approach from the veterans 
Um, and we were they were that new blood. In fact, this is actually reminding me like Nate was actually basically the new blood before us. So he had like the most to say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A very long time. And but they would they kind of like stuck with it, though. Like they would still mm-hmm. kind of make fun of him for being the newbie even two and a half years later. So I think when you came in, Nate may, may, maybe made of uh, might have made the same point. But he was like, to me, he was like, thank God you're here because now they can make fun of someone else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Those are the exact words he used with me, too. Yeah. Which I, I think maybe you got made fun of more. I actually did not. <laughs> I don't know if it's my personality or. I think I'm a little easier to make fun of. <laughs> well, OK, yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm not going to argue with that yet, but uh, <laughs> there might be a few different reasons. Yeah, that was a, a big surprise. So when you got the call to go to one of your, your biggest events ever, I'm going to assume that this was the event that kind of made you the most nervous. You knew how big it was, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely felt that sort sort of nerves and stuff. And I do remember, like, I had never had as much trouble sleeping uh, at an event as as that event. Like, WCS Valencia 2017, I had so much trouble sleeping. I actually also remember getting up and going to the hotel lobby and finding like i don't know if probe remembers this but i saw probe because it was day two or day three actually it was day three um day three basically the the night before day three i should say where probe is sitting there in the lobby at like three or four in the morning and i can't sleep so i went down to like go just walk around for a little bit and i see probe there and he had just lost two to three to neeb in the round of 32, he almost managed to beat Neve, which would have been such a massive upset. And I'm like, what are you doing over here? And he's just like, oh, you know, I can't sleep. And I'm like, oh, no, he's just super duper depressed. But I mean, like, I, I was also just feeling so nervous and stuff the entire event. I got so little sleep that event. Yeah, it can be really tough. So when you started to prepare, can you tell me when did you start to prepare and a little bit as your approach to it? Yeah, so unlike what I would say the uh, preparation looked like in 2018, where in 2018, um, we had really one of the best things that Blizzard had done, uh, I think, in any of the years, was that they reached out at the beginning of the year and said, hey, mm. so here are the events that you're going to work, and here's what we're offering, blah, 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 you're going to do like this event and this event, um, what are your preferences and all that stuff, and you kind of knew or had a sense of everything in like February or March, but for that event in Valencia, my first event, they reached out three weeks before as I arrived in Korea for my vacation. Yeah. <laughs> so it was it was a little bit strange. Um, I didn't really get to do a whole lot of preparation in Korea, but I basically went home. And at the time, I was also still working a full time. Like I was not at all even remotely close to being full time esports. So I was still working a full time job as a software dev. I was still working like whatever, eight to 12 hours a day or something on the weekdays. So it was just, I would finish up my work and then I would just write tons and tons of notes. And we can talk about like the format for what notes and stuff for me look like. Cause I'm pretty sure every caster prioritizes different things for their notes and what they really feel like are the important things they're going to try and research. That's absolutely true. But that's also the point of the podcast. So please give me details. Okay. Well, I actually recently went through a lot of this stuff. Um, so I, I do have a lot of it fresh in my memory because I was digging through a bunch of old badges and stuff. But the the way that I usually think that I bring value to the broadcast is I like to emphasize and kind of hu- uh, the humanization of a lot of the players and kind of bringing up their story, who they are, making them less of just like a random anonymous name 
that you only really see the playstyle for and kind of reminding people of like who they are, what their dreams and aspirations are and what their fears are and all that kind of, you know, lofty stuff that sounds really cool when I say it out loud. But of course, defining it is a whole other thing. So uh, a lot of the stuff that I would write are here are things about that player that would either be interesting if there's downtime to fill things that like, oh, if this player is about to be knocked out, here are things that I can talk about. This player made it is never made it past the round of 16 or something. So it's just brutal that they once again are falling in the round of 16. This just seems to be a mental blocker, you know, special with the round of four, for example, would be a more recent example of something like that. Or, you know, this person has been training so hard. They've been putting in like, you know, they've been playing 300 games like a month or whatever, or every like week or something of Starcraft just to try and prepare for this tournament. They like their hard work is finally being rewarded, like just trying to bring those kind of stories to light. I'd find little facts that back up those kind of uh, stories or like rivalries and things like that. So it'd be a lot of researching on a website called Oligulac that has detailed information on a lot of matches. It'd be actually asking. I'd reach out to players and ask them how they felt about different matches. I'd ask them about things that had nothing to do with StarCraft, like, hey, what are your hobbies? Like, what do you do besides StarCraft? Oh, cool. You play the guitar. Oh, Snoot. Yeah, you play the piano. That's really cool. Uh, like, how did you get into that? So I think just having a lot of that backfill was what I felt like I could bring to the broadcast. Because when you're on a broadcast with people like Rotterdam and Pig, Zombie Grub and Artos or whoever, like a lot of the analysis is already there. And I feel like it's usually better for me to just leverage them than to try and catch up a lot i think mm-hmm. the important thing for me and my approach is that i try and stay just informed enough on the meta and everything that i'm not going to constantly taking be taking missteps and you know saying wrong things but really then just leveraging my co-caster for a lot of the analysis okay well i think that's actually like something that you do very very well oh thank you <laughs> like well <laughs> yeah um well you gave me a compliment i had to give you a compliment <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like this, that's this seemed to be something that was missing a little bit from, you know, personal experience. There's really only a couple of people who actually go down into the player pit, for instance, and like chat people up. It's something that you just kind of forget to do or you feel like you don't have to do because you've studied the player, you know, their, their play style beforehand. But Todd was actually pretty good at this. Yeah. And he has excellent desk segments. Um, and then I know you were actually were very proactive and you would talk about getting messages or even just being messaged, right, by the players. I think Scarlett likes to message you about uh, balance subjects. Yeah. So. Um, well, that that's a funny story, because one thing I learned about Scarlett is that I I would have trouble because I would organize tournaments and I'd invite Scarlett or Scarlett would qualify or something. And she would just not respond when I said, hey, please confirm that you can make this date. You said you could. And I just want to make sure like this date is being finalized and she just wouldn't respond. And finally, I think there was one day, I don't even remember why I tried this, but I kind of said like, hey, Scarlett, can you explain to me why Reapers are so imbalanced? How are Zergs supposed to deal with Reapers? And just immediately, and I want to say this is like an hour after I had messaged her asking her if she was okay for and like available to play in this tournament. An hour later, I messaged her this and just paragraphs start showing up in my Skype logs at the time. And I'm like, okay, so that's how I get a response out of her. Cool. So yeah. I, I, and I, I mean, I learned a little bit about her opinions on Terran balance. Yes. Uh, which is very easy to do, especially back in the Bion days. Yeah. 
But yeah, it does really shine through in your casting. But in your opinion, like what? Because I like again, I think some people think about this a lot. Some people don't. I know that you are one of the things about it a lot. What makes a good caster then? You know, mm-hmm. like you're talking about leveraging your co-casters. So is it your camaraderie with the other people on the panel, which can be an intimidating thing when you're kind of uplifted from online work to offline work with guys you've been watching for, you know, seven plus years? Is it the knowledge that you bring either in the player form or in the strategy form? Do you think any one of these things is more important than the other? Or is it just highlighted by the caster themselves? I think it's a really hard question to answer because context matters so much. Like, for let me give an example. If I'm working at Cheesadelphia, which is a smaller, I mean, still pretty awesome and has definitely been growing, but it's a smaller offline event that focuses pretty much entirely on North American players. The viewership's going to be a lot lower than, say, a WCS or something. But also, there's usually two maybe three commentators there so the feel the approach of the event and like kind of what people what people are going to be tuning in for the event is going to be different the number of commentators is different so all these things can affect what i think is more important if i'm working on a broadcast and there are seven other commentators there i can specialize a lot more i can try and focus on bringing one or two specific things to the broadcast and let other people play to like the other types of uh, forms of entertainment, whether that be really focusing on those people that just want to learn by watching the games and they get that like that pig level analysis or something. Or, you know, if like Nathanius or like in control or whoever are just being hilarious, like I can let them fill that niche. But if you're like on a really small broadcast, then you do kind of want to be a little bit broader. Or if you're on a bigger stage versus a smaller stage, smaller stage, a lot less people are going to be tuning in and, People who are going to turn in, tune in for that stuff are like the diehards. So the analysis is maybe more important or less important, depending on like, I guess, if you think the fewer, like the smaller stage is going to have diehard fans who already know the game and don't need it explained and just want to be entertained. Or if it's people who are or like want to learn a lot about the game, they want to hear the analysis. So I think I think it really does depend on the context. And I think the other big thing that I really strongly feel is that you don't always have to uh, like uh, cater to the largest audience or subsection. I think a lot of people just feel like, well, a majority of people like this, but I think it's totally fine to specialize in the right context. Like I was saying, like a bigger broadcast with lots of commentators to specialize on a particular niche of the audience. And you kind of fill that role. It's like, you know, what it reminds me, it's like Backstreet Boys and Sync and stuff. You had the boy for everyone or like a lot of these K-pop groups and stuff. It's like, you know, you don't have to be the most popular member of the Backstreet Boys, but you fill that right niche for the right people. And that's what you bring, right? Yes, I like to use my R-rated analogy about a strip club and how a strip club always has a, is a, is a nice lady or a guy, you know, depending on what strip club you go to, that always caters to like someone's interest. You know, you got the like the 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 western gal and the southern gal and then you got like the uh the old russian you know woman who's like coming up to you with like a cigarette and they're like everyone it just caters to everyone that's what i learned anyways which so. one caters to you zombie <laughs> <laughs> well unfortunately i didn't get to go to the guy strip club so mm, i'll okay. never know people always want chickened <laughs> out but no like it actually makes perfect sense and it's something that i don't think many people actually approach that way I think the StarCraft II casting scene is actually pretty darn healthy. Like, we mm-hmm. don't have a lot of... We don't have any backstabbing that I know of. 
you know, if we have complaints about other casters, it's usually actually shown in a very mature way. <laughs> you know, we don't mm-hmm. just go uh, rumor monger and all that. But it is one of those things where I think it's very easy to focus on yourself, right? Like I need to bring the best of my ability to show everyone that I deserve to be here, uh, which is certainly something that like, you know, is is what I first thought of. But mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it sounds like from you that you actually think that the best thing that you can bring to a broadcast is working well with others and letting them highlight uh, their strengths as opposed to you just kind of trying to... Uh, to be the everything, to, to make yourself you know, the new Apollo that everyone just loves and always wants to watch. So mm-hmm. do you always consider yourself a viable option for a casting team? Or do you kind of look at some of the caster teams and go, you know what? They actually kind of got it covered. You know, I actually, I think I do think of things more in like a team sense a lot of the time. And I think that it is unfortunate that, this, and I don't even know what a better system would look like, but I think that a lot of the time the system does favor people who are a little bit more focused on themselves like for example if you have someone that really stands out in their individual capabilities not necessarily as like a team member but just as an individual they really stand out people are going to take more notice of that kind of person and like general audience members are going to want that person at events more they get more rallied up when that person isn't there so i think it's better career-wise to actually be that sort of person that just brings a lot of individual energy and to really stand out. And I think there's still a place for that, even in like a team capacity and everything. But I do think to create a better overall broadcast, a lot of the time, like being conscious of like team members and stuff can be a really, really effective way to like create an overall better experience of the uh, broadcast, not just like singular moments brought to you by one individual person. So I, I think yeah. it's it's not always better for your career, but I, I think it's the way that I approach things. But I will 100% also admit that while that's not entirely the reason, part of that reason is I know that I am not like a day nine or a tasteless or an in control or an Athanas or something like I don't I know that I don't have that same energy that a lot of those guys do. Like, I don't think I have that same kind of unique charisma that just draws people to me. So I. I I'm sort of playing to what I have available to me. Okay. Well, like on that subject, like, do you think that is because they are just simply born with a larger than life personality? Because I, I mean, sometimes I think so. You know, I think of the, the big four, you know, the guys doing the, um, uh, the brood war reunion Christmas special thing oh, in control. Um, yeah. Uh, shoot. Artosis, day nine. Tasteless, <laughs> day nine. Tasteless. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and I'm just like, well, those guys are just born of personality, you know, like that's got to be it because <laughs> this is just like I can't ever imagine being on the level of these guys. But I don't think that's really true. I mean, Artosis has talked about in the past being like, you know, many of us, he was that shy nerd who didn't really want to talk about anything until you talked about something he was very passionate about, which happened mm-hmm. to be Starcraft. But do you think that there is a way that you can Im- improve basically overall charisma, which is a big, just vague thing? to say do you think it has Mm -hmm. to do with branding do you think that it has to do with just the length of casting do you think it has to do with the other things they do besides casting or is it actually just something special i i do think that you can improve it it's like you said a very ambiguous thing and i think the hard this is like the hardest type of thing to improve on it's when it really depends on you the person i don't think that there's really good advice that's super general that applies to everyone but everyone kind of has to find their own little pathway. And that's what makes it really hard is that there's not a lot of guidance involved. 
But I mean, like, for example, one of the things that I have been doing, and this is going to sound like a little bit weird, but I have just been focusing a lot more on trying to get better at storytelling. I realize a lot of the time I, do, I tell stories, ironically, even though I try to do a lot of commentary and stuff, I'm actually quite boring. I find that a lot of the time I or other people will lose interest midway through the story. So I'm trying to get better at that and things that I'm doing, like I'm just going through memories of my life. And I'm like, if I were to tell the story to someone as I'm standing there in the shower or something, I'm like, how would I tell this story? And I like just go through practice runs of that. Um, it actually reminds me of how Tasteless has mentioned he like will sit at a coffee shop and just write down jokes and like things that he can say on broadcasts and stuff. Like, I think there is a degree of practice involved there. So I think there are things you can do. Um, but the other more general broad thing, I think that just brings general entertainment value to the broadcast is you just kind of have to live a little. You kind of have to go <laughs> experience things. And that mm -hmm. again, it sounds like such a silly, broad, general, ambiguous thing. But people who are interesting, I mean, forget broadcasting, forget esports, forget commentating. The people that you are usually drawn to as a human are the people who have something that they've gone through, they live through, and they have experience, and they have these stories or things that have happened to them that they can tell and draw upon. They've lived, they've, they've experienced the world a little bit. And they're interesting, I think, not necessarily just because they have those things to talk about, but because of how those experiences change you. And I really do think that's actually like a really big part of it. I, I almost wish on my taxes, I could like write off a vacation and be like, this is a research thing to improve my personality. Yeah, I, I totally get what you mean. It's like eat, pray, love, man. You got to go out there and like explore all the different cuisine and all yeah. the different countries and then put up that that sign on your you know workbench and everyone can think you're cheesy. <laughs> but you're, you're absolutely correct. And actually, you kind of touched on something that I feel pretty strongly about isn't really talked a lot outside of just us casters talking to each other, which is casting is storytelling. When I was a youngin, um, I love stories, right? I write all the time. I was a writer, fanfiction.net. Yeah. And, <laughs> like I, I, had, I had, you know, a couple of thoughts of being a writer and I was like, no, I like art more. But I always like telling stories through art. You know, I like comic books. I like storyboarding. Then I get into this thing called StarCraft II casting and it seems like everything I ever wanted to be was kind of just like, oh, I guess that wasn't really true. But actually, it absolutely is. Voice acting as well. Like storytelling mm -hmm. is actually deeply ingrained into esports commentary as well um i think i i know that you agree with that but like just for the audience like do you agree with that is starcraft 2 more about the story being told than it is necessarily about the game that we see absolutely like i 100 agree you know there's a there's a great youtube video out there where it talks about actually this is going to sound so tangential so unrelated but give me a moment to okay. tell the full right. thing but like there's this great youtube video that talks about uh michael scott from the office and it kind of analyzes his character and kind of says, like, why, like, what's Michael Scott's approach to business? Why is he such a bad manager? But he was the best salesman. And like this ending line of this YouTube video stuck with me so much. And it's that, you know, as like growing corporations and everything are trying to like adopt these models of salesmen who basically have like scripts that they read through and everything a lot of the like personality is taken out of these situations and it's a numbers game about asking as many people as possible it's not about developing those relationships and everything but that's what michael scott was about and that's what made him such a great salesman so in the end of the office as this series goes on and everything and michael scott's like continuing on 
the Dunder Mifflin like branch that Michael Scott works at and runs is actually one of the only successful branches for the entire company. And the purpose of that and like kind of the, the little theme there for this video and what they were talking about the office is about is that Michael Scott's approach is about building relationships. It's about people. It's about telling the story and creating uh, like those relationships with people because people is the business. People will never go away. Like businesses and transaction models and like internet or technology, all this stuff will change. But at the end of the day, like if your business is with people, that will always be something relatable. That will always be a core part of things. So like to bring this back to the casting stuff, I think of it as, you know, people will have, and this is just a reality of how most people absorb their content to entertainment. I think that interest in games will change in like the meta game will change. People will gain and lose interest in uh, like how a particular race is doing or whatever, like things will turn them off. But ultimately I think the story that everyone was always drawn to the fact that that we're always drawn to like movies and books and all this other stuff is because it's about people. It's the, that's what people really, really care about is they want to hear the stories of how someone who worked really hard made it and succeeded in the end. Or they want to hear the story of how this person had this really, really tough villain or like arch nemesis that they finally overcame. Or sometimes people even want to hear the depressing stories about how this guy for, you know, the 50th time, gets second place and just has this mental block because every single time they want to be there and say like, I want to see this guy overcome. And sometimes mm. you're just an asshole like me. And you're like, huh. you just want to laugh at people who once again, see Maru lose in BlizzCon group stages. Cause he'll never face Cyril. It's like, you know, I think that it's like those stories that I think are more interesting. So my very, very long roundabout way of saying that. Yeah. I think the story <laughs> of people is what draws me to esports. And to any other medium, I think. So that that really is the most important thing to me. Yeah. It's just something that seems to be underlying. But once you figure it out, it's like a big light bulb over your head. And you're just like, oh, yes, of course. This is what everyone is interested in. I mean, yeah, we can remember the past, like, Brutal and Fester meta because it was just so terrible. <laughs> but much more fun to remember are the um, the stories. Now, for me, like, I, I think this actually is, like, a very good, like, just showcasing of of different approaches to casting with the same idea. But to me, another important aspect of storytelling is also within the game, right? So mm -hmm. the reason that build orders are important to know isn't just to look, you know, fancy, just like we know what we're talking about. It's also to appropriately build up hype. You know, if a resident glaze attack, um, the cheese, all in, whatever you mm -hmm. want to call it for the guys who don't play StarCraft, comes in and you didn't talk about it at all. It just suddenly happens. Like, it's a pretty lame broadcast, actually. Yeah. And that's also what one of the critiques of like pro professional casting, pro gamer casting, there we go, is as well, is that they are so caught up with the details, they lose the overarching story. So it just kind of is, is all kind of flat. But I approach it with that aspect. You know, of course, I want to think about the people as well. But you just sound like someone who wants to always talk about the people, who always wants to bring up the anime storylines <laughs> between two people. Or teams, right? Which we don't have so much anymore, but we're awesome back in the day. And I think that's like both sides are equally important, but mm -hmm. one side is more appealing uh, to a mass audience, right? Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. And I, I would say actually one thing that I, I think, yeah, I didn't really talk as much about is like actual play in the game and all that stuff, which I think, of course, I totally agree with you. Super important. And I think that is the more 
transparent thing that's the more visible thing a lot of the time and i think the way you said it was really uh really well done where the stuff i'm talking about with like the personality and everything or like the humans it's it's very broad reaching you can show it to your mom like the you know the wcs signature series of sos and all that stuff and like they don't need to know anything about starcraft that is a compelling story right but the gameplay is the the forefront stuff it is the most visible stuff that is the thing that most of the people who are most interested in the game and everything are going to care a lot about. So I think that you're right. They're both important and they both have their places. I think actually my favorite thing in storytelling is when they mix. I love like my favorite thing in all of Starcraft is when I see players and I can look at their play and I can see their personality in it. When I see someone like, I mean, to take an obvious example, no regret who's this Zerg player that just has absolutely no shame in just all inning. And like his literal motto that he's verbatim told me was it's not the first, second, third, or fourth all in that they'll die to. It's the fifth all in that they don't expect because they assume there's no way he's still doing this. Um, and like he, he lives by that. And you can see that in his personality that he's very boisterous. He's very out there. He's outgoing. And he doesn't really care what a lot of other people think about him. He is willing to do all that stuff. And I, I love seeing that in his play. It's because that's what transforms StarCraft or, you know, Super Smash Brothers or whatever other games from just a cool thing that people are competing in to like a form of expression. It, it turns into art when there's that crossover right there. I think that is my favorite, most compelling story in StarCraft. But you really have to look for that. You have to have a lot of knowledge like you were talking about to understand how the build orders and everything are playing out, why someone is doing certain things. And it, it's not easy to find those crossovers. Like you really do have to do your work and research and everything to find them and showcase them. Yeah. And that's why sometimes the tedious work that looks like you're just trying to get internet points <laughs> can actually be helpful, right? You see those, yeah. those, those threads, you know, I felt validated um and kind of when it was actually like actually guys a protoss has never not been in the finals and it was like <laughs> i'm sorry i kind of called it but it, it it is those things that we do have to study even past the point of just knowing the game because again people can know the game but then not be particularly good casters but that is kind of a um a whole other discussion in itself is like our uh hardcore fan bases approach to determining what a good caster is versus a more casual based approach to what a good caster is kind of like skirting the topic a little bit like wrapping around it how do you deal with the feedback from the general community especially <laughs> when it seems like they don't they don't quite know what they're talking about oh i mean how real do you want me to get on this i mean as real as you want man all right well I have an approach that I wouldn't recommend for anyone. <laughs> oh, God. All right. All right. Maybe not that one. Yeah. Um, my approach is that I have such a critical and negative opinion of my own casting that when people give me negative feedback, usually I like I read that and in my mind I say, well, you're kind of right, but you're really missing the core issues that I'm facing right now. See, here, it's actually much worse than you think. Come sit down. <laughs> let me explain to you how bad I am. So like, that's actually like a somewhat exaggerated, more comical version of like what goes on my head when I read really negative comments, but also with positive comments. Like in, in some ways, my approach is that I, I actually read a lot of comments and I'm like, I know better than you. 
I'm much worse than you think. So like, that's kind of my approach to dealing with it. That's clearly not a very healthy way of going about it. I'm working on that. Um, but I think a healthier way of doing it is evaluating things and kind of detaching yourself. I think actually, actually, uh, as much as I would sometimes argue with cats, I do think that like the ultimate ideal goal is that you can read criticism and take your ego out of whatever you're reading and not take it as a personal attack on you or who you are as a person or anything and take away whatever like negative frame that they're putting things in like, oh, you know, Fear Dragon is such a shitty commentator and like he should just quit because such and such is like, well, okay, for, drop the entire first part. But the such and such, hmm, that is actually maybe something to explore. Maybe they're even sometimes a little bit off base. Like they, they are attributing an issue that they have with your casting to like one thing. But really the underlying cause is something further back, right? Like there's, there's things like that and that you can ideally go for. I think that's the ideal but it's really hard to reach that. It's really hard to stay mentally uh, strong enough to do that and read that yeah. feedback. Yeah. I mean, you don't really want to go through YouTube comments, for instance, as much as I know that you do. Because they're usually <laughs> Only just... Only when I'm depressed, okay? <laughs> I only do it when I'm really feeling bad. Oh, boy. Um, yeah. Because they generally aren't very... Uh, they don't have any substance. And that mm -hmm. is usually what is missing. I, I feel strongly that there are a subsection of people who have bad feedback who actually could give proper feedback if they were taught. And mm -hmm. then, of course, most of it's actually just people being you know, assholes, let's be real. But I really feel like people just have never learned how to give feedback. And, you know, thinking back to my K-12, like, and that's the education system, and for people who don't <laughs> know that, like, I don't remember ever being taught that. The first time I was taught proper feedback, you know, besides, you know, be nice, say something nice, you know, that's not proper feedback, was when I went to art school. Mm. which makes sense because they have to be very critical there. But ways that you can frame it, you know, well, so basically being negative, but actually being substantial because that's, that's mostly what's missing from the feedback. Um, do you find that it's actually at all helpful to read the non, the people who aren't in the business, the people who don't think critically on this? Uh, for me, I think if enough people say something, it might be true, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's always that reality to things. But for the most part, if I'm looking for pointed substantial feedback i would probably never go <laughs> to the the forums right i usually mm -hmm. am very like self-introspective first of all but uh do you find that it's actually useful to go on the forums or do you actually just completely limit it to people that you talk to because i know you do actually ask for feedback from people in the industry yeah um uh, that's a, man i'm i'm like also just hung up on that point that you made that yeah you're never really taught in any kind of education or formal system to give feedback and i'm now reflecting back on my life and i'm like yeah you know that really is an <laughs> issue even like as a because you know i'm a full-time software developer uh and that's actually like that's actually an issue that i see with a lot of people is they don't know how to give like good constructive feedback rather than like putting it in a really negative way or even just sometimes making the difference between like nitpicky feedback and like actual feedback and stuff so yeah that's that's a really good point but yeah, I, I think I do occasionally find value in that kind of stuff and like going through comments and everything. But to be honest, I think I'm actually in the same camp as you, uh, probably more so that I really rely a lot more on my own judgment and watch it as painful as it is. And it's still painful. Uh, let's see, nine years later to go back and rewatch my own VODs. But I think that is where I get a lot of my own uh, feedback because, you know, I think you hit the you hit the core of it in that feedback is very difficult to give, but especially feedback 
on something that is arbitrary. It's not like, here's a math problem. Oh, let me give you feedback because, you know, this part of the problem, you made a mistake. And it's not like there's any if, ands, or buts about it. Like, three plus two is five. It's not six. Like, that was just straight up wrong. But when you do something arbitrary like casting, the, the lines of right and wrong are so much more blurred. And it's really difficult to give good feedback unless you know what someone's objectives are. What's the context? Maybe it sounds like, you know, oh, this person really just rambles on way too much about sponsors or whatever. But it turns out the context you guys don't know is that the audience that you like are that is normally just listening to the broadcast. They're not actually the target for that little segment. The segment is actually targeted at making the sponsors happy or targeting Maybe if you're like a low income person and you can't afford buying a lot of the sponsor products or something, a lot of the conversation is actually just targeting the fewer people that are maybe are older. And we're talking about like, I don't know, tax software or something like that, or like investments or something. And we're trying to sell an older generation or, you know, it's kind of weird examples, but like Mm. it's, it's very difficult to give good feedback without having context. And that, I think, is the biggest problem with Reddit and Team Liquid and Twitter and all these other random general forms of uh, feedback that you end up getting. And that's why I think industry uh, veterans are like usually better for feedback. Yeah. I mean, it's hard, it's hard to argue otherwise. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. someone on the internet will. And they'll be like, no, the random guy is so much better. But uh, <laughs> yeah. one day I'm going to catch someone being like, actually, I think they are. And I'm going to be like, what? But maybe a future guest um is there any feedback that actually has stuck with you a lot that you've remembered um either recently or from years ago hmm um you know i think that there's definitely been some the stuff that stands out to me in my mind are (laughs) somewhat negative feedback is uh the early years between 2014 and 2016 where so many people would just say, are you trying to copy day nine? And I'm just like, no, I'm not. But I understand that my speech patterns are kind of like him because I fell asleep to his voice every single day for six years. Um, But uh, (laughs) but besides that, um, I remember actually In Control gave me some like uh, coaching lessons on casting and stuff. And he used to actually talk a lot about kind of, um, it's something that I think it's pretty obvious when you just state it out there, but I think it was something that I am still very conscious about, which is bringing up things that don't necessarily add value to the current context. Like for example, let's say that a player is doing something a little bit strange, right? It's something a little bit strange is going on, but Mm -hmm. it hasn't actually had an impact just yet. And it's not really clear that it will even have an impact. You kind of have to make a judgment call. Is this actually going to end up having the impact? Is there nothing else better to talk about? If we're talking about something more important or something more interesting, or we're talking about the player history or something, maybe it's better not to just like divert and bring up like, oh, this person like put probes on gas 15 seconds later than a normal person would. Like that might sound really cool and interesting if you're going into super deep level analysis. But if in the context of what's, happening on the screen or like in the tournament or something it's not that relevant then sometimes it's actually better to just let those things go because it's better to like not just bring up and try and create like nine narratives all at the same time and just dive back and forth between the each narrative and then just end and be like and cool here is all of your story in like this giant pickup truck like 
enjoy audience it's usually better to just kind of simplify things down to uh, maybe a few elements and you kind of try and see where things are going to pan out and stick with the stories that are panning out but limit down the options don't try and like walk every single road of every single story that could be told um that that actually really stuck with me it's pretty good advice i mean it's really easy to get bogged down especially the more you do know about the game Mm -hmm. and sometimes it works that you can weave a a thread and your co-caster also knows so they're kind of weaving together and it's a perfect blend but more often than not someone gets they get they talk way too much basically (laughs) the analysis gets way too too bogged down and and the the other caster basically has kind of nudge him and be like yep that's you know it's cool that that probe was late um yep 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 (laughs) yeah it's it's something that we all do occasionally as well especially towards the slower start of starcraft we're like that that there's four out of three and the gas guys are guys like can't get over this like fix it and we just you know it's usually comical (laughs) but sometimes we get stuck on those tiny things yeah. Kind of pivoting this to, to talk about the craft of casting, though, you know, we kind of touched on uh, on feedback. There's no actual true way of like 100%. This is the best casting ever. But there are definitely, I think, mechanical things that can be overlooked. Esports is a very homegrown passion field, right, where no one goes to school for this. No mm-hmm. one is under tutelage for this. You pick and choose what you want to learn. You usually are just told to do it. There's there's no practicing beforehand necessarily. You just upload something to YouTube. So mm-hmm. the craft of it is sometimes even made fun of, you know, like for the people who get to the S tier casting level, and I'm talking all esports, some of them just kind of did it because they are actually naturally good, you know, yes. and they, they did everything correctly. And it's like, oh, shit, you know, cool. But there is definitely a craft to it um, as far as like recognizing its storytelling. I think it's one big thing, but. Do you ever think about the mechanics of talking? Uh, basically, do you ever work on your enunciation? Do you ever do pointed practice when you're talking about, you know, improving your play-by-play specifically? Oh, absolutely. 150%. Um, I have warm-up mm-hmm. exercises and stuff. And I will say, I think in StarCraft, I don't know how it is in a lot of the other games, but StarCraft, I do find that a lot of the talent, at least are less public with maybe things like warmups and stuff. And a lot of the things that I actually have found many other people in like talents for games in general. I can't really speak for all esports and everything, but like um, when I meet hosts that do like general variety gaming hosting or they host like TwitchCon things or whatever. A lot of them have like warm up exercises and they do like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, the random weird sounds that you'll see <laughs> yeah. people making in the corner. So uh, I try and do some of those. I have like my warm up rap song. Like I memorized all the lyrics for uh, Eminem's Rap God, like the really, really crazy part. And I'll do that as like a warm up a few times. Also, just get used to talking quickly. And uh, like I don't really broadcast or do any of this uh, publicly. But I will sometimes sit down and when I'm watching either like a StarCraft stream or actually more commonly a Super Smash Brothers stream, I will just try and do nonstop play by play for a really long time just to work on my general ability to get words out very quickly, but also clearly stuff like that. I think that uh, the stuff that I, I probably still do need to work on is I know I do slur a little bit. I know this because my mom recently told me that she thought Pig's commentary was a lot better than mine because he doesn't slur like I do. And that was a really fun thing to hear. Um, but uh, I think 
stuff like the mechanics of actually speaking and being more conscious of how, you know, like my tongue is uh, being used in specific syllables that maybe I'm slurring, like that kind of stuff, I think would also be helpful. But you're right. We don't really get a lot of professional coaching or anything unless you go seek it out yourself. So yeah, yeah that, that kind of stuff, I, I definitely think is a lot of room to improve for a lot of people, myself included. Yeah, um, just off the top of my head, just like literal talking, yes, but even camera presence is something that you can mm-hmm. learn, you know, like news anchors don't just go on there and just know what to do. But it's it's just not really focused on. It's generally, it's kind of usually just, what's the word I'm looking for? It's it's excused by saying like, well, someone just has charisma, right? Mm-hmm. When it's not necessarily true that there's ways you can learn to actually approach the camera or approach speaking or anything else that you do but the craft of it's actually yeah it's funny you're gonna start a craft but we don't really craft our (laughs) casting it's usually so much more about the analysis really right because most of our feedback is based off of what do we know but there's one thing that i've like really strongly tried to remind myself is that you know there's the old cliche which is people don't remember what you say they remember how you make them feel Mm. and i certainly think that casting can be a lot of that. There's always that moment, you know, where where a caster makes an amazing call and it's remembered. Okay, like that'll happen. But generally, just how, it's how we, they made us feel, like how well they got along with the other casters. But of course, the actual content of their delivery is also very good. I learned that you know, casting play by play is actually very difficult, and there are ways that you can try and improve on that specifically. And I know you you pretty much identify as a play by play caster, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I want to be a play-by-play caster. I think it's there's a weird irony that I know you will probably appreciate also a little bit, which is when you're coming up as a community commentator, especially back in like 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014, all of the people who are doing low-level, and I don't mean low-level in terms of like the gameplay and stuff, but like low-level commentary in the sense that you're entry-level getting into it, everyone's a play-by-play commentator. because if you're a grandmaster or something, you're really good at analytical kind of commentary, then you're probably already escalated up a little bit, unless you're like really, really a unique case and you're working your way up as a, like an analytical commentator. So I had to work for like my first five or six years of casting and community events and all that stuff with other play-by-play commentators. So naturally you just start drifting to become a little bit more of an analytical person. And then when you hit the big stage, it's like, oh, hello. Literally every single co-caster is Grandmaster League and considers them, themselves analytical, except for like Maynard. This is different. <laughs> yeah, um, it actually might just be a totally biased thing, because when I was coming up, I always thought that everyone was color. And I also mm. definitely had reservations about the just subconscious bias that people have against women play-by-play casters. Which I, mm. I really would love to get. Uh, there's an Overwatch caster who recently talked about this, and I would really love to get her on the podcast to talk specifically about it. But it was a huge challenge for me, is what I'm getting mm-hmm. to, to be a play by play caster at all. I've really tried to like grow over the years and all that. But play by play, it just it, it felt to me like it was something that was out of my reach, that uh, everyone else was trying to be the smartest person in the room, and I had to be even smarter. <laughs> And that's also where I got a lot of my my cred, you know, my, my mm-hmm. credit was that I was the the smart one. But for you, it's like the complete opposite. And I wonder how much of that is maybe the 
the co-casters we were brought up with because I was working primarily with Rifkin for those same years. So you kind of started casting in the same year. Or if it is just our inherent biases, you know, because we both started off with the different goals. That's a good point. Yeah, it it may have just been kind of like co-casters and stuff that we ended up working with. But I mean, I remember that like I specifically would always think like, man, it's so much nice casting with Zombie Grove because she just will actually talk about all the cool and intricate analytical stuff in the game. And then I can just do the stuff that I really enjoy. Um, I feel like also part of it probably also comes down to like, what do you really like about commentators or like, what do you like to bring to the table? Um, And I know, for example, for me, like from the very beginning, literally like the first commentary that I did that I mentioned, like fear dragon versus gray arrow on lost (laughs) temple. I remember I sent it to you. Funny enough, someone who eventually became a Dota 2 commentator years and years later, but mm-hmm. like he, not for a very long time, Blitz Dota. I remember I sent him that video for feedback and one of his bits of uh, feedback was like, hey, like you had really good energy, but I don't know if you can keep that up for like four or five hours or something if you have to do like a broadcast. So like maybe you should tone down on your energy levels and stuff and be a little bit con- uh, conservational. And that always stuck with me because I'm like, fuck you no i can be i can be this energetic and positive the entire goddamn day and i mean that's that's a lot of what my brand is built on (laughs) so uh, i think your like personal styles and stuff probably mesh in a lot of like what kind of commentator you become and also your perception of like what other just naturally that will lead you to be paired up with certain types of people and stuff Mm mm-hmm are there any specific challenges that you can talk about to people who like might want to be a caster or who just like learning about the stuff about play-by-play because one of the things i learned trying to improve at it was that there's a, a lot of things that i didn't realize were so difficult about it it's actually one of the weirdest things where casual audience play-by-play you know casters are probably the most well-loved because mm. they're, they're the hype ones right a uh, hardcore audience they're the you know they're maybe not so but it's also kind of either either way it's kind of regarded as the easier job the one that can mm-hmm. maybe transfer over into um, hosting or other esports more fluidly. So I want to, you know, kind of clear up any misconceptions. Do you actually find it hard to do? Do you want to talk about any of the weaknesses that you constantly find yourselves like uh, getting pitfalled into? Is that a word? That's not a word. <laughs> Finding it's going to be a word now because you know what? <laughs> no one else has a microphone, so they can't argue back. Hey, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a good question. I would say that uh, for me, the stuff that I think is a little bit more difficult about like play by play and stuff is especially if you're starting off is it's really easy to overreach. And if you're trying to be a play by play commentator and you have an analytical commentator to work with, or even if you're just working on your own or something, it's okay to not over actually. And I would love to hear your thoughts on this as an analytical commentator, like your thoughts about just overreaching and what i mean by overreaching is if you're not sure about something it's okay to just not say it and oftentimes it's okay to just not even bring it up or like to pose it as a question to your co-caster or something like that like i think it's really really easy to do exactly what you're saying and just try and meet and match being the smartest person in the room and it's i think it's a play-by-play commentary it's totally fine to just be like yeah guys I don't know, and I'm really excited to find out the answer. <laughs> it can be a beautiful, you know, chemistry if, mm-hmm. especially if you don't do it in a way that just, you kind of have to like a little bit, how am I, how am I trying to say this? Like, 
I feel like the best play-by-play commentators are the ones who do have a general grasp, but they're, they're, they acknowledge that someone can either explain it better or knows mm-hmm. it more specifically, right? Yeah. So the more that you can kind of be like, oh, yeah, you know, I've seen this, but um, you know, can you tell me like a little bit about what it means is better than just being like, I don't know what this is. Pig, like, what is this? <laughs> yeah. Unless you have no, a little exactly. bit of credibility. And then, it became, and then it can become an epic moment. That's the whole, you know, casting is fluid and there's no right way to cast thing. But yeah, it's definitely better not to overreach and, and certainly to just feel like, I don't know. I'd say the one dangerous thing about that is that if your analytical caster doesn't know either. Yeah. <laughs> and you just put yourself in awkward positions. Uh, one of the tricks that I have learned to try and accommodate that uh, is that I will, when I usually ask those kind of questions, I will say things like, oh, you know, uh, this roach timing or something, blah, blah, blah. And I'd be like, do you know if this roach timing does something? And then I'll say, and I'll, I, I will ask the question. And then you create a little bit of a buffer. And you say, because, and this gives the analytical caster time to either think about what you just said and or come up with some sort of response that isn't just like, I don't fucking know, like, why are you looking at me <laughs> about this? Um, but you say, like, because such and such and that's the other thing is like you try and make that such and such like a possible reason because then that person can say like i think it's not less that and more of this Mm. because then it also gives them like a if they have no idea they at least have something they can work with other than i'm not sure it's like hmm well i'm not sure but that's a good point we could maybe it's part of that or you know i'm not sure but me i feel like the problem with that reasoning is such and such like you're giving them like a conversational topic other than just here's a question, answer it. And if you don't have an answer, good fucking luck. Like, am I allowed to curse on this, by the way? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, okay. I don't <laughs> know how many like 10 so. year olds are going to be listening to this podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fine. But that is like that is also a very good point. Like you never really want to just directly um, line that up. But and this is kind of a neat transition as well. There are times, especially in offline events, where you can actually talk to your co-caster and be like, hey, I have something that I want to bring up. Can you please set this up for me? Sometimes it's really cheesy, so you don't want to overuse it, (laughs) especially when the person isn't necessarily the best at setting it up. But sometimes it's very, very helpful. You know, so actually talking to each other beforehand and acknowledging, like, I do know what this is, right? Or uh, I do know a lot about this player. So, you know, can you let me talk here a little bit? Mm-hmm. Have you ever found yourself in a position where you actually have purposefully dumbed down your take on the game to let your co-caster actually fill the role as more of an analyst? Yes, but I think actually, and this is probably something I should work on, is that I think I sometimes do lack the, not the ability, but I, I definitely don't discuss things with my co-casters in that sense as much as I probably could mm. um, and kind of setting things up and stuff in advance. I think you would probably be the one exception because I know you you are usually the act, more active person when we cast together that brings that kind of stuff up. Um, but I definitely have a lot of the time that and I'm still working on this. I think I still sometimes could do this more. But there are a lot of times that I have thoughts of like some analysis of a game or something and I will think like okay if i know this pig probably knows this times 10 so i will instead of just saying like hey this like this build counters what this other person's doing right i will say instead to pig like how does this build do 
versus what this other person is doing. Because it seemed, and I'll, you know, the little do a little, because it seems like it has some potential here. And then Pay can be like, this is considered the hard counter to like this build or something. So like just let letting the analytical commentator, I get mm. get a little bit of shining moment, but also, like you said, sometimes a lot of the time your co-caster is going to be able to explain something better than you can because it's their specialty. This is what they they love to do. Yeah. Do you ever consider that as hurting your brand, though? It might make the overall ca- cast sm- uh, flow mm-hmm. a little bit better, but I mean, it could contribute to people saying that you are just a dumb play by play caster. Totally. And I think this goes back to what we talked about earlier, where I think I care a little bit more about like how the overall broadcast and stuff feels. I'm okay with being one of the like people that I think is supportive role and everything and not necessarily making the like the big shiny flashy moments and stuff. Although I, I do feel like the place that I would like to be able to do that is in the play by play. Um, But I think I'm, I'm okay with the fact that it hurts that, but I will say I can I'm allowed to say that because I'm also not financially dependent on casting almost mm-hmm. ever outside of like the short period of time I tried to do that. But uh, yeah, like I, I think it's a lot easier for me to just be like, yeah, well, if I don't get hired, then I just get to do my like the thing that I really enjoy less. But it's not like, oh, no, I can't pay the bills unless I like work on my brand. So I I, yeah. I do feel like I get to cheat a little bit on that. It is tough. Uh, let's play on a zoom out and talk a little bit about just overall StarCraft II casting. Mm-hmm. So, like, the overall state of the scene, basically. I know one of the big difficulties of StarCraft is that we don't have a ton of events. It's not that it's a dead game. It's that if you compare us to CSGO, they literally have an event every single weekend or two events. And they have, like, A and B and C streams. Um, there are so many CSGO casts you can follow. It's actually kind of mm-hmm. insane. But anyways... For StarCraft 2, I mean, you talked a little about building a brand, and that is one of the difficulties as well. Do you ever consider, like, just how difficult it is for new casters to come up on the scene when there's only four, you know, to six main gigs a year and not much else? Do you think this really does hurt the chances of uh, newcomers? And do you think there's any room for newcomers into the uh, quote-unquote main pool of casters? Absolutely is the answer to like the overall question of I do think it makes it very difficult and it's very complicated. The one little thing that I'm just going to put out there and say I'm going to completely 150% ignore this part for the question is that coronavirus and COVID whatever like it's creating a very different atmosphere that I think does change things a bit. True. But we're going to completely shelve that for a moment and just talk about like as if that was not the case. I do agree. Like, I think having a limited number of events does make things really difficult. I, in some ways, like, I still think that um, there's a lot of luck involved. And I think the way that there's like an old saying, I can't remember the exact wording for it, but it's basically just, you know, it's luck and persistence. You need both. You need to be persistent enough to get lucky. And that's Mm. the way I always thought, like, it made sense to me is that you just have to continuously be there actively working hard until you get lucky and of course then there's also still work after that and everything but it's a it's a really tough thing to like rise up you do require a bit of luck and i think there's ways that you can increase your chances you can try and be smart and everything but these days when i think of like trying to come up as a commentator i really do like the approach that i took um this is like a little bit narcissistic for me to say is that i do think i have one of the most 
I don't know if it's narcissistic. I think I have one of the most repeatable approaches to coming up as a commentator. And mm, okay. I think it's because besides being like a very a generally like optimistic and positive person, I don't really think that I had a, any natural talent really for broadcasting or anything like that. I was not exactly like a, a super good on camera person. I don't have like the most amazing voice and definitely didn't have a great voice when I started. I had a very nasally voice and all that stuff. But I think like I just made very incremental changes. I think I was not good enough to get hired to cast even on like and when I say hired, I don't mean for money. I mean, literally just for free. Most people would not have considered me to cast like their online event or something for absolutely zero pay. So I just started running my own events and finding my own funding and stuff, which ended up coming through me. That was my advantage, um, I guess, as well. Right. But like, I, I feel like it's a very repeatable approach in that sense. And just like, I think we talked about this before. I just was casting for like six years before I even got brought out for an offline event, which I said, hey, if I show up at the events, can you let me commentate on the stage for like one or two matches? Um, so it's, I do think it's a, my approach is one of the more repeatable approaches as opposed to like, oh, well, you start off as a Grandmaster League like player and be somewhat competitive like Rotterdam or something and then have all of the natural talent oozing out of your fingertips and your brain literally just recollects every single moment of every single game you've ever watched. Like, I don't, I don't know how you develop that kind of stuff, honestly. All right. Well, here's like the hard question. Um, do you think that there is enough money around in StarCraft to really allow for new talent? The reality is no. Uh, people will, if new talent rises up, then old talent will either get booted out or it'll be a split of how much money is actually going around. And that is a really tough thing because mm. ev I don't even mean new talent starting now. I already think we're actually at a point where we are oversaturated on number of commentators for large events. Like I, re I remember I was going through and I created like a hard list of comment, every commentator that had been hired for a premier event in the last year. And it was a list of, I think 24, 25 people. If you actually go uh -huh. through and include every single person that was hired just for a premier event, that's not even including some of the people who got hired for, kind of premiere ish events like cats who got hired for a lot of wcs challenger uh, or yeah. coltaran or same thing or like tempo who i think actually would be really good at a like live event as a commentator or a host or something like i'm not even including those people it's really difficult when you as you mentioned there's a limited number of wcs events or now i guess esl pro tour events there's gsl but you have to basically live in korea to do that yeah and hope they're sick <laughs> yeah exactly and hope that nick or like tasteless and ortosis are sick and maybe rapid and no regret are not available or something yeah. and also i guess for a little bit but not anymore creighton olsen like it's it's so difficult mm -hmm. to actually get those little opportunities and make enough money to make ends meet that's why every almost every single commentator is a streamer as as you know zombie grub <laughs> yes yeah that is the honest truth like every commentator basically has to be a streamer Tastos is kind of the only ones you can exclude from that list. Um, here's the harder question then. You already kind of brought it up, but do you think that there is a chance that the old talent will fall off? Oh, that's a really tough question. You're right. I know. <laughs> so I think 
Here is my super duper unfiltered take on it is I do think it depends on who's doing the hiring because mm. frankly, a majority of events happen for one circuit. It's, you know, of course, GSL is doing GSL. So I guess I think tasteless and artosis have a lot of input on who the fill-ins and all that stuff would be. So I'm not going to even talk about that, but there's stuff like WSG, there's stuff like cheese Adelphi and everything. But when it comes to like the big events, in the non-Korean scene, it's pretty much going to be ESL doing the hiring for that. It's probably going to be Apollo and Joe Miller and stuff like deciding who's getting uh, hired. So ultimately, who gets hired and who has opportunities and stuff to come up and whether or not certain commentators get edged out or something, it's actually going to come down to like who's doing the hiring. And this is a really, really tough reality of uh, working in like a smaller ecosystem like this. And I don't mean because Starcraft is a super small ecosystem or anything. Just I think esports is still small and it'd be the same as if Overwatch League or something was, a uh, you know, we're, we're in Overwatch League and there's tons of money being thrown around. The reality is there's going to be one person or maybe two people who are handling the hiring for that. And it comes down to their opinions. Does Apollo feel like a certain commentator needs an opportunity and desire like uh, deserves an opportunity to come up. That's honestly how I think both you and I came up is that Markle Burtz felt like, you know, I think that we could, it's time for us to introduce new talent. If he didn't feel that way, I don't think that Zombie Grub or I would have gotten our chance. And it, it's a little bit of, like I said, luck and persistence, persistent enough to get lucky. Yeah, very true. What do you... Uh... Think, do you think that StarCraft II casting in general can be improved uh, overall, either talking about the individual casters and what they bring to the table or to the actual production? So talking a little bit of like giving you flexibility of talking about having more money into the scene as well. Um, but how would you improve StarCraft II casting? Oh, my God. Well, as soon as you say that I am allowed to touch production and stuff, God, that's, <laughs> just a black, that's just a black box that I could probably spend another hour and 20 minutes on uh so i'll i'll keep that one a little bit shorter and just limit it down to one thing and say automated analytics is something that is just automation in general is something that's extremely underutilized and breaks my heart every single time i see it uh come come about as a software developer because there's so many times that i look at things and i'm like oh that's really cool how is that done and it's like well I manually input all this stuff into a spreadsheet and I'm like, what, why, why is that manually done? Why don't you just use your, you know, human resource abilities on something else and automate this like this. Uh, so I feel like automation and statistics gathering, like one of the coolest things about uh, like American sports and stuff, maybe Europeans will disagree with me, but I mean, even European sports are statistics and uh, whatnot that are gathered about the players and all these things. And we live in this like world where tons of money is poured into what in sports, it's just the ability to gather data, not even actually just processing the data, not even just figuring out what is the interesting bits of data, literally the technology for cameramen to be able to film a field, a football field or something or American football field, and to be able to automatically dissect and gather data uh, about how players are moving around and like where the balls are like and where first down is and everything all of that is happening and it is like is getting tons of money poured into because it exists in the real world where we have to transmit it into like digital data that can be represented on our computers right to process and then here we are in esports these 
are lucky sons of guns where we literally play the games in a digital world. It's already in the digital format. We don't have to spend any money or very little money to actually transfer that uh, like analytical data around. And what do we do? We do almost nothing with it. Almost nothing whatsoever. And it infuriates me. Why are there not tons of like bits of data on whether or not top spawn versus bottom spawn is better on certain maps or something? Why is there not just like detailed analytical stuff that you, I can just run my replays through to see, oh, well, this player or like, you know, this build actually has a certain win rate against this other build when it's like approximate and you do build order detection stuff. It's not exactly a super easy problem, but like all of this stuff could exist. Sorry, I'm getting actually into the black box. I've already been talking about this for four <laughs> or five minutes. So um, sorry, I, I'm actually I'm at, like you, you triggered me. This is like such a sore topic for me. I'm I'm so frustrated with esports about this right now. Um, I can tell. Talking about like... the casting side. Yeah, sorry. We can like tell you're a programmer as well. Yeah, sorry. Um, talking about the casting side of things. I do think there are some things that uh, casters could do a little bit better. I think that uh, people like you are doing a great job of like making this less of a problem. But I find that there are a lot of stories that are actually happening. And I don't just mean like, oh, stories of the humans behind the, the games and stuff. I actually also mean in like play styles and a lot of this other stuff that are happening actually behind the scenes on the ladder and in online tournaments. And I do feel like it's very easy. And I actually, I feel this a lot more um, in the past year than I used to, but it's very easy to just not pay as much attention to the day-to-day -day lives of pro players in the fact that most of the games that they play competitively are not at offline events. They're actually in these online events. They're facing each other all the time. The ladder streams and stuff that are visible, like there's a lot of information available about the players, but it's a lot of work to go research and watch all of hero marines vods or check out all the base trade tv and warty tournaments and stuff that are going on and kung fu cup and everything and i do think that uh i'm not like naming any names or anything but there are a lot of commentators right now in starcraft that i think don't keep up with a lot of that and they kind of have this attitude of well if it's not a big event it do doesn't really matter that much and i do mm. think that that is a missed opportunity to build a lot of these stories and to build a lot of that uh that kind of I guess excitement and hype around particular things for because that that's where that's actually where the majority of StarCraft competitive uh, stuff is. It might yeah. not be the most important place where the StarCraft esports is, but that is quantity wise where a majority of StarCraft comp competition happens. Okay, I mean that was like well, it was about five minutes. No, I'm just kidding. That oh, was an interesting <laughs> yeah. take on things. Oh, I absolutely well. agree with it too. Which is actually interesting because I know some other commentators would actually disagree with you on the importance of stats, but yeah, that's for uh, future guests again. Last kind of note, like no, last topic. There we go. Last topic as we are nearing the end of the podcast here, but one that I find just like I personally always want to know the answer to from when I talk to is: Do you think that caster pairings are actually a beneficial thing to do? kind of also referencing just like what we can take from the other large scale, bigger mm. esports that have bigger production. But one of the more pointed ones I wanted to ask about was caster pairings, which seem to be kind of the, uh, the go-to nowadays. But yeah, do you think that has any merit? 
I think it goes back to context that I keep talking about, right? What is the tournament? Let's say, for example, that this is a tournament where there's going to be, you know, four casters or something. Is it better to just always have two casters paired with like each other and everything and then just cycle back and forth between them? I mean, for breaks and stuff, that might kind of be nice, I guess, and uh, whatnot. But like, I, I think with that kind of thing, imagine each caster pairing as being like one particular combination and you can kind of like merge it into like one archon right and now it's like you're just treating it like one singular object right one one singular commentator in a sense and now we go back to the whole thing about preferences and all the stuff i was talking about of oh like how should a commentator like cater for different audiences and stuff well if there's not that many uh, commentators at the event then maybe you have to be a little bit more broad reaching and stuff. So like, I think one thing that meshing up with multiple different co-casters does is every single time it brings a different flow. And this is actually something that uh, I've mentioned his name a bunch of times before, but like the person who was hiring for a lot of the WCS events in the past, Markle Burtz was very, very conscious about. And you'll notice that for WCS challenger, the way that all of the, uh, the caster stuff was done was it was just like this moving rotation where every caster would be on for two casts and then they would go on break and there'd be like a third caster that would cycle in basically. And one of the biggest things that uh, Marco Burt said was like one of the greatest successes of WC's challenger was that there was so much variety because every single series had a different feel. Every single series was like a little bit fresh because there was a new caster pairing and a different dynamic. When I was commentating with Jeff, Jeff would bully me and it was like a weird, funny dynamic and a little bit awkward. And then, you know, I then uh, I would move off and then it'd be Jeff and Nate and those two just like memed around like crazy. And then I'd come back on and I'd be with Nathaniel and we'd talk a little bit more about the game and be it'd be like a little bit more serious. And it's just kind of that alternation. It kept things from getting stagnant. So then when I look at caster pairings, I think of things in the same way as like, well, I feel like having caster pairings, it limits the amount of variety you could get for bang for buck. I mean, uh, in terms of like, well, I guess you could just hire eight different caster pairings and get the same thing. But obviously you have to hire a lot more people now. But I I do think maybe quality wise per cast, there'd be a better um, quality. So again, I think it depends a lot on context. I, I would not hate to see it tried out at least a little bit. Yeah. I think I'd just be nervous about like, you know, like the 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 caster picks, you know, like <laughs> either someone tells us who we cast with and like it's like because I don't think anyone hates anyone. Right. But it would be one of those things where like, oh, man, like, you know, I, I have to be more of this role now, yeah. even though I liked being able to play all the roles because we do kind of have that going for or there's us. people that I think you just get along with better like yeah absolutely I, I can think of an example of like I know you and Maynard are always really excited when you get to cast together. But I also really like casting with you, and I would be really sad if it was like, oh, well, Maynard is casting with Zombie Grub, so I never get to cast with Zombie Grub now. Like, I'm like, oh, okay, well, I mean, yeah. I might like the other person I cast with, but I, I miss out on that opportunity as well now. Yeah, well, Maynard's also the perfect example, is I think everyone loves casting with Maynard, so yes. everyone would be a little bit sad. I just think it's it's something I'm interested in because it always seems like when a new big esport is announced, it always seems like they're pushing for caster pairings. And I'm sure there's some logistical mm. reasons for that as well. But yeah, there's um another whole conversation there. But we've already been talking for over an hour. I, I figured <laughs> this would happen, you know, like I want to try and condense this and just be like, it's going to be like nice and sweet and like really to the point. 
not never is because there's just so much to talk about and so many interesting viewpoints. And I like in the process of talking to you, I have thought of like two dozen more things. Yeah, <laughs> it's almost as though whenever we sit down on a Skype call or Discord call or whatever, that uh, especially even when Maynard gets involved, that our conversations literally go for five hours. It's almost like mm. we talk about this stuff a lot. <laughs> we do indeed. But that's going to have to cut it for this podcast. You know, I'm totally open doing part twos with anyone that I you know, just have more to talk with. But for now, it's going to be it. Fear Dragon, thank you so much for taking the time to both help me out on the technical side, as well as actually be the first guest on casting calls. So please give a shout out to whatever you're doing. You can be as detailed as you want. I know you're doing some, uh, you're bringing back the uh, interesting facts. Doing some oh, yeah. Stuff. So talk to me about it. Yeah, uh, you guys can catch me on Fear Dragon 64 and literally everything. I am single-minded with my usernames, and I will actually email a company if you try and steal that username from me and ask if I can get you like removed or something. So don't try it. Uh, but besides that, uh, I'm at, yeah, I'm streaming and doing YouTube stuff and everything. I'm actually, I'm not uh, like don't don't take this as like me quitting or even actually trying to dial back on how much stuff I'm doing. But I'm just trying to be a lot more like laissez-faire on what i do now and take things a little bit less seriously so whenever i just have something i want to do i'm just going to go do it so I, I don't really have a super consistent stream schedule and i have like a consistent schedule of youtube videos or anything but right now i'm enjoying making useless facts so i'm making useless facts i have some coding projects and stuff that i occasionally do and uh, i like to cast so yeah you can find me there on all those uh, social media websites twitch youtube etc and you know what? Don't don't even worry about sending money my way. Send money other people's way, and uh, if you check out my stuff, I'll be happy. There you go. And check out his uh, shock Twitch streams, where you shock can shock him. Yeah, if yeah you, you can him. literally electrocute me. <laughs> and Smix, if you're listening to this, please, 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 don't ban me. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, as well as his applause bot. He's doing a lot of programming stuff, so that's always cool. You're providing a lot of assets to the community. Thank you again for being on the podcast. That's going to be it for the first episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And I will see you guys next time with hopefully just as interesting as an episode one and episode two, probably with Maynard, just as a just as a throwing it out there, probably going to be used up next. So please tune in and check out the Patreon. And thanks for listening. See ya. Thanks for listening to the podcast. And if you guys enjoyed it, make sure to check out the Patreon at patreon.com slash zombiegrub. This is all just me producing and getting everything organized and everything, basically. So your support really means a lot. There's a couple of really cool rewards that I think you guys will actually like. And the uh, goal for right now, our first goal for the Patreon is to get to $100 per creation and then actually include video with all the podcasts for anyone who uses YouTube. If you just go outside walking, listening to podcasts, well, then you might not want video, but the option will be there. So definitely check it out. And thanks for watching, guys.